an unofficial motto upon which the theology of Christ's followers is built upon, which says this, we are called to live for the benefit of others. From the moment that we come into relationship with Christ, there is a call and a desire and a pull of the Lord in our lives to help us live for something that's bigger than us. We're called to live for the benefit of others. This, in essence, is where the strength of the Christian life is found in giving ourselves away to other people as we live. The issue arises that when we theologically change the concept of living for the benefit of others and we turn it into a rather self-focus, we turn it into spiritual consumerism where we begin to enter into church and we begin to enter into relationships in Christ looking for what others can do for us or or what have you done for me lately or even in our relationship with God asking, you know, Lord, I don't feel you're near because you haven't done anything for me lately. When we turn into spiritual consumers, we've lost much of the joy of our relationship and much of the strength that comes. And what results from that is that we can end up as a church corporately or certainly as individual believers in a state of spiritual laziness, criticism, personal indulgence. And overall, as a body of believers, we can end up with a a tremendous absence of focus for what the Lord would have for us. And the most tragic result is a loss of the true testimony of the reality and power of God in and through our lives to the benefit of others. I believe that in the day in which we live, people that are criticizing our relationship with the Lord, part of the reason they criticize it is because they have not seen within our own life the reality of the power of a living God. And so when we look at ourselves in light of what God desires of us, that as we begin to focus our attention on living in His power and through His strength, for the benefit of others, that it will change the perception that other people have about the Savior that we serve. In Revelation chapter 2, if you would turn to this, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, this particular part of Revelation is a series of letters that were written to seven churches in Asia. This particular passage in these verses is written to the church at Ephesus. And the Scripture says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, if that verse stopped right there, you would think, that's a church I want to go to. And as everything listed, as the Lord begins to outline all of these great qualities, and then you get to the end of that and there's this added to it. Yet I hold this against you. Or in other words, as good as you think you are, let me point out where you are weak. You've forsaken your first love. Out of all of the things that are listed within this verse, all of them are in jeopardy when we lose focus of what we are called to do and called to be. 
Now I recognize in this church that I'm thankful that we are multi-generational. I also recognize that we have people of all different ages that are in different stages of spiritual growth. Some of you are just starting out in your walk with Christ. Some of you have been uh, walking with the Lord for a long time. And people who have just begun their walk with the Lord, one of the temptations that they face is that you have a tendency to draw back into some of the lifestyle practices and sinful practices that you had before you came to know Christ. There's that strong pull to try to pull you back into what you once knew. Now those who have walked with Christ for any length of time, there's a different potential for you, and your potential is to draw back into something that's much more insidious, and that is going through the motions and the duty of being a Christian without there being a recognizable love for Jesus Christ. We can go through the motions and yet have a motivation that we feel nothing within. It's a duty without a first love experience. And this is what had happened to the church at Ephesus. They were a church that had a zeal for the truth. They had done good works. They were active in their community. They were known for things. They were people that spoke the truth. They knew what holiness looked like. They knew what what those that were trying to be holy and weren't looked like. Yet despite their history of incredible victories... There was a dissipation happening in their hearts and in the people and in the church and they were moving out of that place of loving Jesus with all of their heart, mind, soul and strength and moving into a place of just going through the motions without the heart motivation. And so this church at Ephesus faced a moment that would potentially determine their future and it wasn't until the Holy Spirit called to them and warned them that they were even aware of their condition. I believe that the Spirit is still speaking to His church today. He's bringing to the church worldwide, and certainly we are part of that body, an understanding that our motivation in life must be born of our love for the Savior. And that everything we do must come out of that. You see, drifting from God is not something that starts on a Monday and that you recognize it by a Wednesday. It's often gradual. It's hardly discernible. It it occurs seasons after seasons and months and even takes place in years. And now in order for you and I to fully understand what was happening in the church at Ephesus, there's a wonderful example that is given to us in the testimony of one of Israel's greatest leaders. And I don't know if you've recognized or not, but just about every sermon I've had this month has had some... Uh, recognition of the life of David in it because he's such a great example in so many different ways. But what we see in the letter to the church of Ephesus, we see lived out in the life of David as a wonderful parallel. And I'd like to tap into that for just a few minutes this morning. If you have your bulletins, there's an outline of the message there that you can feel free to look at and and write down as, uh, as as you desire to do so. But the first thing I want us to look at is David's initial victories. Just like the church at Ephesus, David loved God with all of his heart in those first few years. In fact, when you look at the life of David as a young boy and as he was growing up and even into his teenage years, he took care of the little things. It was the little things that he was obedient to God in that prepared him for greater things. And he did them because he loved God with all of his heart. In fact, as you read 1 Samuel in in chapter 17, and you don't need to turn to it now, but it begins to list some of the things that were considered little at the time. And as I read them, I think they're pretty big. 
You know, like as a shepherd, when one of your lambs gets stolen by a lion and you go and you grab the lion by the hair on his face and you get your lamb back. Now that was considered a little thing for David. If I do that, I'm bragging. I might even write a book. David says later on, well, and there was another time when the bear came and and took a lamb and I knew that God had entrusted those lambs to me so I went and grabbed a hold of that bear and I got the lamb back and he had done all of this because he took his responsibility seriously. David had a burning inward concern for the testimony and honor of God. And as a result of the victories that he had won step by step in his growth process, he was ready when the really big things came. And we read in... 1 Samuel chapter 17 of a big thing. In verses 36 and 37. He's standing there and he recognizes that the army of God is facing Goliath. And for 40 days they've been standing face to face and running in fear. David shows up. As a matter of fact, he was on a trip. He was bringing cheese and supplies and supposed to check on his brothers. And as he gets there, he recognizes the dilemma they're in. And he goes to the king and he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. This is a teenager talking to a king. But there was something so powerful about his passion, so confident in his demeanor of his God and his ability to fight to honor God that a king looked at him and said, I'm putting the future of our nation in your hands, young man. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now we know that David had originally come and he was unprepared for battle, so he went to a stream and he he found some smooth stones that had been fashioned by the hands of God and ultimately he won a marvelous victory for Israel. And David was willing to press through all of the unbelief of the the entire army of God. He was willing to press through all of that in order to fight for the honor of God's name. He loved God so much that God's honor was at stake and he was going to fight for it. And so we see throughout the life of David as a young man great victories that he had won. But we also, looking at the life of David, come to a point where we understand that David's greatest enemy sometimes was himself. Have any of you ever felt that way? After all of these victories, David eventually came to a point where he encountered the greatest enemy that he would ever face and that he would ever have to fight, and that was himself. Now, last week we talked about the silent enemy that every one of us faces, and that's the battle that takes place in our mind as it relates to how we're going to relate to the Word of God. And we ended up having a great time of prayer together because we know that the enemy likes to attack our faith and our minds. And if he can try to win a battle of how we would respond in our minds, then we never ever get into the battle. And so we recognize God brings a protection to us and a strength to us. And that as a body of believers, we lean upon one another and encourage each other. And we build one another's faith up and we help fight that battle that comes into our, into our mind as we battle for our faith. But sometimes we have to fight against our own fallen nature too. You and I have this nature within us that we have to constantly fight again. And in spite of what the Lord tells us to do, there is something inside of us that attempts to craft another way. 
When the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, and He leads you, and He guides you, and He opens the door, we in our own mind says, no, Lord, that's a good idea, but let me just perfect it for you. Let me just change a few things. It'll be easier for me. You're going to look good in all of this, I promise. We'll give you the glory. But we begin to try to change things to make it better for ourselves without ultimately knowing everything that God wants to do. And as we do that, we begin to head in a direction that begins to deplete the passion for God within our own hearts. Because in fighting our own will, we start giving in and compromising in these ways without knowing that when we do that, there's something that is withdrawn from us that depletes our passion as we continue on that path. It depletes our ability to believe God. It depletes our ability to press through unbelief and our desire to persevere despite the personal cost. This is what happened to David. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David was a king, by the way, David sent Joab, and he sent him out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. I was watching the news this week just trying to figure out because I knew that we've all heard this before, but how many times do you hear a news report start with, the police were called to respond to an emergency at 2 o'clock in the morning. At 3.30 this morning, the police were summoned to and, and the place. Now, I recognize, because your dad was probably like mine when he told you, nothing good happens after midnight. Any of you ever heard that before? So the first thing that you hear when people get in trouble is at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, is what were they doing up at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning? And so we have this idea that nothing good happens after midnight. It's a time for battle, that the Scripture says. Kings lead their armies to battle. David decided not to go this time. Now the historians tell us that David at this time was somewhere between the ages of 53 and 59. And perhaps at this point in David's life, remember, from the time that he was just a young boy, he'd received nothing but victories. He'd had nothing but accolades. He'd had everybody telling him how great he was. He'd had nothing within his life that would seem to look like a defeat. Perhaps at this time, David was just going through the motions. Maybe he was tired of praying. Maybe he was tired of just seeking the will of God. Maybe he was tired of putting his life on the line. Maybe he was just bored with victory and thought, I want to do something different. Maybe success had been such a part of his life that after all, he'd reached the pinnacle that he thought, it's time for somebody else to go out and do the work. I need to relax a little bit. The Bible tells us that when David had conquered Jerusalem, that the fear of him went throughout the nations of the earth. There wasn't a nation at that time that didn't know about this man and that God was with him. Everything that he had done up to this point in time had been fulfilling the promises of God within his life. But at this place of success, Sometimes success is dangerous. At this place of success within his life, we find David lying down in the middle of the day taking a nap and getting up when he should have been going to bed. The Bible tells us that he walks over to the edge of his rooftop 
I have to believe that He had been there before. I have to believe that He had been at this edge of this rooftop at different times of the day, and I have to believe that He knew what He could see from the rooftop. He could see the whole city. It probably had a spectacular view of everything there, but He also knew that right close was places where Bathsheba was going to bathe. He probably even knew about the time of day when that took place because it was a time when it should have been at night. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know what? It wasn't that there was a lack of issues that needed the king's decree going on in Jerusalem at the time. It wasn't that there were not soldiers on the front line that needed him as their king to come and stand beside them. And if he felt he was too old to fight, at least he could encourage them. At least he could be there with them. At least he could say something to them that would help them in this, in this moment of battle. He could have brought greetings and encouragement. But what happened to David is that he could no longer see that God still entrusted lambs to his care. What happened is that he began to lose his awe and honor of God. He began to forget the first love that had motivated him as a teenager. And now as a successful man, he was willing to sit back and begin to remove himself from those things which God had wanted him to do and let the ranks in the armies of Israel take care of working and being jealous for God's honor. And we get to this point, and what happened here is that the devil began to paint a picture. The devil paints David a picture. Now, I want you to know something today. It's important for you to realize that the devil loves to paint pictures for everybody. He likes to paint pictures that look beautiful, idyllic. He likes to paint pictures that if you enter into it, Everything is laughter and joy and happiness and self-fulfillment. He loves to paint pictures for our world. And he says in those pictures that I'm going to give you what you want. It's going to be everything that you've ever dreamed of if you'll just follow the picture that I'm painting for you. How many of you have ever read or seen the movies of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Some of you, some of you are going to have no idea what this illustration is. If you've read it or you've seen it, there comes a moment when Edmund, who's the younger brother, makes his way through the wardrobe and he gets into Narnia and he meets the White Witch. And he's unaware of the evil that she represents and does. And she has him climb up into the sleigh with her. And the witch asks Edmund, what would you like? What is it that you want? Anything that your hearts desire? Just tell me what you want. And, and Edmund says, I want Turkish delight. Now, I don't even know what Turkish delight is. But it must taste pretty good. And instantly, magically, she makes Turkish delight appear. And as a result of the taste of this Turkish delight, Edmund continues to follow after this witch and, and to be around her and the things that she's doing. And we look at this, and ultimately what she had placed in front of him and the picture that she painted for Edmund led him away from his family, led him away from his friends, led him away from his destiny that God had planned for him and led him to great sorrow and distress. Now we see that and we know that Edmund wasn't forced to eat the Turkish delight. He wasn't forced to leave his friends. Edmund did so out of the desires that were within him because he saw a picture painted that he desired to follow after. Likewise, Satan will never make you do anything. Do anything. He will never force you to sin. Rather, he will put in front of you the things that you enjoy and he will begin to paint a picture for you. 
And he will say, if you just follow this, your life is going to look like this picture. It's going to be there for you. I promise you, it's all going to be good. And the devil paints these nice pictures in order to take us right out of the battle. To take us away from the first love of our heart. To entice us to be distracted. And the devil painted an enticing picture for David. And he says to David as he's standing on the rooftop that night, as he's beginning to paint a picture for David in his mind, David, man, you've worked hard. Stop for a moment. Just take a look at the victories of your life. You are a great man. The whole world knows of you. David, you've, you've fought in a lot of battles. David, you're the king. You need to enjoy yourself. Your armies are out and they're still winning without you. You, O oh king, need to look at the picture that I'm painting for you. Satisfy yourself. You deserve this. Because you've been serving everyone else. It's time for you to think about yourself for just a few moments. Oh, as you're standing here at a time when you should have been in bed and you're looking over the edge of this thing, look at that woman. Beautiful, isn't she? Let me paint a picture for you. You're the king. She'll come at your summons. You'll be able to enjoy everything that you've wanted. It's waiting for you. Here's the picture. What that did was it began to activate the seeds of lust within David's heart. And his thinking left from being, what should I be doing to benefit the Lord? And it moved to what can I do to benefit myself? And he ends up taking the stance that I will choose to gratify myself rather than live in obedience to what the Lord has for me. And he ends up taking something deficient because of a picture that had been painted for him and he called it good. And James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 put, puts what took place in the life of David into words that you and I can understand when it says this. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. In other words, through the Holy Spirit he's saying the picture that the that the enemy paints for you is never the complete picture. He paints for you a door, but he never tells you what's on the other side of that door. And in that critical moment, David looked at the picture that the devil had painted before him, and he made a wrong choice. And you and I today would be wise to learn from his mistake. And remember, the devil never paints the whole picture. In this case, this is what he left out. He left out the dead sons that would result from the wrong decision that David had made. He leaves out the cries and the lament that would come in David's own heart when in 2 Samuel 18, 33, years later, he's crying out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He left that part out of the picture. He left out of the picture a relationship with Bathsheba that would also bring a son called Solomon who took his father's lust and multiplied it by ten and built heathen temples and died a disillusioned old man. The devil left out of the picture that Solomon, as a result of the relationship 
with Bathsheba would have a son named Rehoboam who forsook the counsels of those that knew the presence of the God and was responsible for splitting the kingdom of God into two. That never made the picture. You see, he paints the picture of the door but never tells you what's on the other side. Never paints the whole picture. And there are some of you today that are faced with a picture that the enemy is painting for you of what your life should look like or what it can look like. And he's drawing on all of the issues of your heart that would lead you away from the satisfaction of knowing God so that He can begin to dissipate your first love experience. But the picture that He's painting for you today is without the death that it causes. It's without the picture of the broken homes or the divided kingdoms or the anguish or the sorrow or the heartbreak or the guilt and the shame or the regret that you live with or all of these things that ended up being a part of David's life because he looked at the wrong picture. So beware when you start to be led by the desires of your own heart and no longer led by the Word of God. Beware when the thought comes to your mind, take it easy, you've worked hard, you've fought long enough, it's time for somebody else to pick up the cause. Let me tell you something, God never expects us to give up the fight until He calls us home. So we come to this point, and it's a pivotal point. The devil is not the only one who paints pictures for David. David had had other pictures painted in his life. In fact, the Lord had once painted a beautiful picture for David and had given it to him in the form of an incredible promise. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And here's the picture that the Lord painted for him. So David... Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God speaking to him said, When you walk with me and when you let me lead you, I promise you that what you accomplish is going to have eternal benefits. It will last forever. In other words, David, walk with me and I will bless you. Walk with me and I will bless your house. Walk with me and I will give you a glorious heritage. Walk with me and I will bless your future. Walk with me and there will never fail to be somebody on your house sitting on the throne of Israel. Just walk with me. It's the picture I paint for you. And so God paints beautiful pictures of blessings for us. But we need to know that His blessings are not unconditional. We cannot walk away from Him and still expect to see the blessings that He promised us when we were walking with Him. There are always consequences to the choices that we make. And we all come to those pivotal points of life that have the potential to greatly impact the course of our future just as David did. I've often wondered what the life of David would have been like and what would have been recorded for us in the Word if he had made a different choice at this pivotal moment of his life. Instead of standing there on the side of his roof looking over at a place where he shouldn't be looking and seeing a woman, what if instead of saying, bring me that woman, he would have turned around ran back into his room and said, bring me my chariot. I need to go to the front lines to be with the man. What would have happened if he had sensed in his spirit that the picture that was being painted for him was a false picture and that he knew from deep inside what the right thing was to do? What if he had picked up the sword 
And instead of later on trying to have Uriah killed because of his sin, it stood beside Uriah. You see, we face the consequences of the decisions that we make in life because of the pictures that we see and choose to follow. Think, Pastor, this is kind of discouraging. Well, there's a way back. There's a way back. We know that David made the wrong choice that when he was on that rooftop. When he saw her and he summoned for her, he never would have believed. He never would have believed that he would become a murderer and a liar. He never would have believed that he would lead people into defeat. Because he followed the wrong picture. But I want you to know something about his God and our God. He's still merciful. He's still merciful. Ultimately, we know that David returned to his first love. It wasn't without the consequences of a bad decision. And each of us live with the consequences of decisions we make. But I want you to know that they are not eternally damning because we have a Savior that steps into the middle of the situation and He says, I'll take you as you are and I will change you and I'll give you a new hope and I'll give you a new future. It's never too late to come to the Lord. David, after he had gone through all of these things in Psalm 51 with a heart of repentance and a heart of great sorrow, he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love, according to Your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, I know that You'll forget it, but I can't ever forget There's those moments in my life when we remember the things that we've done and we wish, I wish I could live that moment over again. And he lived with that even though the Lord says, I have cast your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. In verses 10 through 12 of that chapter, he says this, Create in me a pure heart. This is one of the greatest prayers you can ever pray. When there are pictures that are painted before you and you feel as if you're ready to dive into something, just pray the prayer. God, create in me a pure heart so that I can see if what I am looking at is a picture that you're painting or it's one that I'm being led away. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Oh, how God responds when the prayer of those who come before Him are, Lord, I am so sorry. Cleanse me, renew me, and set me back on a pathway that I can be found in you one more time. What a reminder for us. That even if somewhere along the way we've made a wrong choice, we can still take heart. The Lord continued to address the church at Ephesus. You see, they had had pictures painted for them, and so they started doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons and had lost the first love experience. The Lord says, everything that you're doing good is missing the element. It's missing the element of loving me. And it doesn't matter what you do or all of the good works that you can accumulate if you're missing the element of doing it for a heart that loves God and desires His honor, then it is unrewardable. And so, 
The Holy Spirit speaks to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 5, and He says this, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Now, from their view, they were still doing all the stuff. But the Spirit says there's been something that has fallen within you. And He says, Repent and do the things you did at first. I don't think it is ever wrong for the Holy Spirit to ask His church to repent. In fact, repentance should be a part of our everyday life. Lord, as long as I'm walking in this human body, regardless of how pure I think my motives are or how much I desire You, I know that I am in a fallen state and so I repent today. Would You create in me a new heart today? Would You, would you give me purity of thought? Would You help me, Lord Jesus? And, and when I face those things along the way that are pictures that You didn't paint, would You give me the discernment of the Holy Spirit to end that moment say, Create in me a pure heart, O Lord. And lead me on a right path. Because the Lord is always saying to you, go back and do what you did at first. There's, there's something that we call first love. For those of you that, that are brand new in Christ, there's an excitement. I love having new spiritual births in the church because it brings excitement. You know, when there's a new birth in the family, baby cries, there's a crowd, man. Can't wait to get around something new. We need that in the church for life. We need to remember what it was like. First love. I've told you before, I, I am not much of a letter writer, but I really became one when Cindy and I were dating and she went on a missions trip to Guam. I wrote her every day. That's how my mom knew I was really, really in love with her. My mom says, this, this seems real. You're writing. I remember getting letters back from her and I would read those letters and then I would reread them and then I would read between the lines. I might have been making things up, but it sure made me feel good. That first love experience and, and that's what the Lord calls us to that, that in the love letter that He gives to us that there would be a response from our heart to Him saying, I can't wait to get with Him. I want to be, make sure that my life brings honor to Him and I, I want to do everything out of the motivation of loving Him. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To him who overcomes. In other words, this is not always an easy exercise. You're going to have to overcome yourself, your greatest enemy from time to time. You're going to have to overcome the pictures that the devil paints for you. You're going to have to overcome uh, the issues of, of getting tired from time to time. You're going to have to overcome the issues of selfishness. But he says, to he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life for you and me in the New Testament is the cross of Jesus Christ. The Lord is essentially saying to us, if we will take heed to His warning and repent and do our first works, I will let you participate fully in my victory of the cross. Everything that I did will be fully applied to you. And all of the vision and the power and the joy which the world does not have and the world can never offer, the devil can only fake his paintings when the Lord creates real artwork in you. You will not find any joy and following the paintings of the devil. So what can we learn from this? I'm going to ask the worship team if you please come. What can we learn from this? That there are going to be temptations in our life to withdraw, to back off. 
There's going to be temptations in our life to want to pursue selfishness. It's part of our nature that we have to overcome with the Spirit, which is why He tells us that His mercies to us are new every morning because He recognizes that what He did for you yesterday and the blessings that He outpoured upon you and the strength that He gave you yesterday is not going to be good enough for tomorrow. That there needs to be fresh communication and fresh touch each and every day with the Lord. He's got something new for you. There are times in our life when we have to choose how and for whom we will live. And I believe that there are some that are at that crossroads today.